It is Wednesday, December the 14th, 2022. It is episode 68 of Toe on the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It is Pitching Talk each and every episode with David Cohn, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Rourke is here as well. And we have more pitchers signing free agent deals with two in particular that I think could end up looking like bargains. And we will uh, talk about that. We'll talk about the Braves trading for one of the best defensive catchers in Sean Murphy. We have Jerry Blevins on the show, a former major league reliever, a co-host of Shea Station here on John Boy Media. He stops by to talk about all the pitching additions that the Mets have made. David, James, the Mets, they have uh, been the story. They're going to steam right past the Cohen tax with that being over $293 million. That threshold right there. And I definitely want to save the Mets talk for Jerry, but really quick to start the show with all the moves the Mets have made, where do you rank them here in mid-December within the NL East? You know, I think they have uh, plugged the hole, so to speak. You know, you, you plug DeGrom's hole with, with Verlander. That's about as good as you could do and under the circumstances. To me, the real wild card is Senga coming over from Japan, you know, his upside is is through the roof, so to speak. We don't know exactly what the adjustment period is going to be for him, but his stuff is electric. He's got a chance to really light it up, up to triple digits in his fastball, and that ghost forkball that Jerry Blevins is going to talk about in this episode is pretty unique. So yeah, I'm anxious to see him. He might be the X factor for the Mets. He might put them above where they were last year, and they were a 101-win team last year. Singa's a really interesting ad, and what I like about him landing with the Mets is that if he signed with a lot of other teams, there would have been this expectation like he has to be the ace. Well, he's going to New York behind Scherzer and Verlander, so I think it's a perfect spot for him slotting into that three position. And Ghost Fork, that's an 80-grade pitch name to me. Yes. Yeah, right up there with the airbender. Uh, right up there with 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 the, with the gyro ball. I'm looking forward to to watching Senga when he gets here with the with the Mets. But like we talked about, the hustle never ends in the NL East. As the Mets are adding, the Braves make a big trade. We'll touch on that in a few moments. Also, some uh, pitching uh, free agents finding new homes as well. But let's start off like we do every week with the opener. David, what do you have for us this week? Well, you know, for me, I, I think, you know, we've talked about and touched on in this podcast about the rules changes coming. Everybody's talking about the pitch clock, the larger bases, the limited throws to first base, trying to get athleticism, the banning of the shift. The thing that's really underrated to me is just the schedule itself. The new schedule is going to be a big issue in my mind. And, and, and I like it. You know, personally, I like more of a balanced schedule. Everybody's going to play everybody. Now, the Yankees and the Mets, obviously, will still have their their crosstown rivalry and, and their sort of home and away series. But you're going to see the Dodgers twice. To me, the most exciting series that I've covered for the Yankees over the last several years is when the, is when the Yankees went out to Dodger Stadium. And you remember they wore those black uniforms and just had an electric series out there. I mean, it was palpable. You could feel the electricity. Something about the Dodgers and the Yankees. Well, at the end of May, the, the 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 Padres come into Yankee Stadium, and then the first week in June, here come the Dodgers to, to Yankee Stadium. I love that. And the Yankees are going to go out and play the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium as well. So this sort of more of a balanced schedule is a big deal, not only to be able to see all these teams more often, but also in terms of competition. The Central Division teams are going to have a tougher go of it, I think, because with the unbalanced schedule, they were able to play each other more. Cleveland and Kansas city and the Chicago white Sox of the world. And then the national league as well. So they're going to have a little tougher go of it. So it's going to be hard to handicap 
you know, uh, the, the total wins, the projection systems because of the schedule, I think is a, is a, is a tough chance this year, whether you look at projected wins across the board, whatever, whatever system you use, it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting just to schedule itself this year and the impact it's going to have on the game. It's the off seasons. Maybe that's why it's not top of mind. And like you said, it's maybe overshadowed by the rule changes. This is such a, a massive change to how the game is played and what we're used to as fans and people who, who love the sport. 2001 was the first year that they, they went to the more unbalanced schedule and you're facing teams in your division 18, 19 times. So, you know, if you've been a fan the last 20 years, you're used to facing you having your favorite team face the same four teams for almost the half the schedule, 19, 19, 19, 19, 76 games. Now it's going to be much more balanced. Coney, you mentioned that it's going to maybe take a hit on the, uh, on the central division teams who don't beat up on each other quite as much, but the, the other main thing interleague play was when it first started, it was this little bonanza in June where you, it would be a pocket where you'd get all your interleague games in. Then it's spread out through the season, but it's still somewhat rare. It, you know, having the Yankees face the Giants or having the Cardinals face the Red Sox is, it was, you know, oh, a, 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 a special rare kind of thing. It's only happening once every few years, or maybe a, a team only goes to a ballpark once every five or six years. Now you're going to be facing every team every season and playing at every ballpark at least every other year so it's a huge change yeah i'm i'm, I'm pretty torn about it now that we're, we're talking about this and and thinking about it i mean in, the interleague play has always stuck with me and, and there's like an indelible moment on my youth with baseball i saw barry bonds in old Yankee Stadium in 2002 he clobbered a pitch from ted lilly for i think he's like 500 80th home run, something like that, uh, all the way midway up the upper deck. I'd never seen a ball hit that high and far. And then I watch Mariano Rivera strike him out with the game on the line later in the afternoon. Like that game always sticks with me as a fan. And I love the interleague play for those reasons. You see stars in your home team's ballpark that you normally don't see. And then I look at the schedule as it's laid out for next year and and like you take the Yankees, for example, like they have two trips to Fenway Park. And I, I feel like those trips in your uh, division opponents home ballparks, you're like, all right, well, we don't come back for another two months. Let's see where the division is by then. So if you're a Yankee fan, you only have two trips to Fenway Park. If you're a Cub fan, you're only going to St. Louis twice. It's It's going to take some getting used to from obviously the unbalanced schedule that we've known. For me personally, I grew to like. I, I loved seeing your division opponents as much as possible. It's like the nitty gritty and make, made it was part of the essence of a, of a tight division race. Valid point, you know, and that, that's the, that's the significance of this adjustment for everybody. And that's why it's going to have a bigger impact than I think people realize, you know, especially in the face of, as James said so well, of, you know, everybody's concentrating on the other rules, rules changes. This is a dramatic shift in the sport. All of these rules combined with the schedule change is a real, uh, a real sea change in my mind of how the potential impact. Now we don't know till we see it, but it is very interesting. This feels like a big deal in major league baseball, that this is a turning point. This, this sport is pivoting, you know, on a dime and, and making some real changes to the sport that are going to have significant impacts, including the schedule. Further homogenization of the league. 
blurring the lines between the American and National League. It's becoming more and more maybe like the NBA where, you know, you're facing everybody all the time and the and you're the the cleaving of the the American League over here, the National League over here. They used to have their own league presidents, their own league offices. And now it's it's very much becoming one 30 team world. All right, let's get to some happenings that have occurred around Major League Baseball. We had a three team trade on Monday featured nine players. That's pretty exciting. Uh, the highlight, I guess the immediate impact being Sean Murphy going to the Braves and William Contreras going to the Brewers, other pieces going back to the A's for Murphy. So how much better does Murphy, who's considered one of the best defensive catchers in the game, how much better does he make that Braves pitching staff? Well, he's so good and under contractual control and relatively inexpensive at this point for the Braves. So just another coup for me, another great move uh, from Alex Anthropoulos, who's just done a great job building that team. Uh, certainly the getting the buy-in for everybody, all the young players to sign early contracts, getting them locked up. And now here comes your catcher. And this is uh, the best on the market. And if you're Oakland under the radar, with all the moves they've made going back to last year in the trade deadline, they have a significant amount of prospects, really good young players, including some Yankee pitchers that the Yankees might like to have back right about now, but we'll see. We'll see how Frankie Montas does this year. They've got him for one more year, but nonetheless, uh, you know, I think under the radar is Oakland has just stockpiled some really good choices. And that's what it comes down to in these situations. When you're trading your best players, you got to pick wisely. You better pick the right prospects. And it looks like Oakland's done a great job in that. You give the Braves a lot of credit. And also the creativity of the three, three team trade is really unique too. Cause Oakland was asking for the moon and rightly so for Sean Murphy to get another, another team involved and get another couple prospects going their way was a way to get that to the finish line. So I love those three team trades. You know, you, you, it, it gets, it really tests general managers and their creativity and how to match up and, and scouting departments and analytics departments makes their job that much more difficult. But when they're, when they're pulled off, it's a thing of beauty to, to see that three team trade. Kudos to the Brewers to, to squeeze themselves in and get themselves <laughs> a good hitter in William Contreras. But this is the Sean Murphy trade for a reason. This is a, a phenomenal pickup for the Braves. You can make a good case that Sean Murphy is a top five catcher in baseball, especially if you're looking at it, offense and defense combined. As far as the impact on the staff, Shaq, plus eight in framing runs last year via StatCast. That was sixth in the majors. Uh, he, was, he ranked fourth uh, in 2021. He's a great framer. He's got an above average throwing arm. He's very well-rounded behind the plate, and he's always drawn rave reviews as far as handling a staff. Offensively, he has a 114 career OPS plus. means his OPS is about 14% better than league average when adjusting for ballpark at He's fifth since 2019 when he made his major league debut top five hitter at the position 18 home runs last year. I think that could even take a, a little bump there moving from a pitcher friendly Oakland park over to Atlanta. Maybe he gets a little power boost too. So based on those strengths, is there one Braves pitcher in particular who we think can benefit the most from Murphy's addition? I, you know, I think it's an overall, the, you know, situation, you know, top to bottom, 
the overall depth of, of the the Braves pitching staff will benefit across the board. Uh, it's hard to pick out one individual guy. It's going to take some time for them to get to know each other and get a feel for each other. Uh, there, there's just certain points throughout throughout the course of a game where you, when you find out and there's not enough time to, to, uh, to, to, to look for information for help. You're in the middle of a game and a, and a catcher like Murphy can work with a pitcher who's struggling and get him through a tough inning to kind of show the confidence and lead him through, through a tough spot. When the, when pitchers kind of get that deer in the headlights, look, when you kind of lost, you just gave up a three run home run. You got two men on base. You're getting ready to get knocked out of the game. Your outing can be saved with a good catcher right then and there. So you know, that that's, that's not pitcher specific, so to speak, to answer your question, but that's the type of catcher that Murphy can be and has shown that he can be because he, he, he commands that kind of respect. He comes in with a pedigree. So yeah, when that starts happening, those little things start to happen, that's when you gain a lot of confidence in your catcher. And that's when he really pays dividends. One name when you just think of, Oh, think of a young pitcher. How about Spencer Strider? You know, that's someone that, that could be helped with a, with a, with a, good veteran now you have Travis Darno the bridge were already in a good spot catcher wise but uh, adding Murphy could be a boost there and oddly enough the Braves had good framing last year it was minus two when Spencer Strider was on the mound so it's a little bit of an, an oddity there but if that's something that can improve with Murphy then that's gonna help Strider even more after his great season you know, the duo behind home plate last year, Darno and Contreras, they definitely improved defensively now with Murphy and Darno. Uh, the Blue Jays, who for so many points last season, it was like Alec Manoa, Kevin Gosman, and the field in their starting rotation. They make a big free agent addition. They sign Chris Bassett to a three-year deal worth $63 bucks. When you slide Bassett into that three spot in Toronto, guys, where do we now rank the Toronto rotation in the AL East? Well, they've got some real stability, which is really what they needed. And that's what Bassett provides, as we've seen over the last few years. I think they got a, a good deal when you compare to the compared to the Taiwan Walker deal in Philly and some of the other deals out there for pitchers of his ilk in his category. He might he might be undervalued a bit, but Toronto got somebody to sign there. That's been a problem for the Blue Jays to get free agents to actually go to Toronto and sign. A lot of their deals used to have to usually have to come through trades or or another avenue, draft and sign and, and develop. So it's a real nice piece for them just to sign somebody. You didn't have to give up prospects. You didn't have to make a trade. It just cost you money. Um, and, and certainly, you know, obviously maybe a draft pick compensation on down the road, but you get stability in the middle of your rotation, exactly what they need. Somebody can give them innings. Somebody can get deeper into the games. That's the value that Bassett provides. We saw it last year with the Mets. He was going into the eighth inning at times. He can get through three times in the order because of his creativity. You know, maybe he's a little undervalued because he's not a big power guy. But the, you know, we we said before, and we had him on our podcast, the sums greater than the parts with, with Bassett. His deception, his durability, his ability to get through the order three times or more really kind of separates him in my mind. Bassett, I think, is a perfect addition for this staff. Manoa, Gosman, and Pray for Rain was a bit of the was a bit of the, the the issue there. But now you have a really solid top three. I don't know if I put him ahead of the Yankees rotation-wise at the moment, but he helps them a lot. And I think the X factor there is going to be Jose Barrios. Can he get right and be the guy like he was in Minnesota? Then you're really cooking with gas with a really strong four-man rotation. But if it's like the last couple of years, maybe not. 
know, they're paying Barrios to be that guy. So if he can kind of recover and show that old form that he had with the Twins, yeah, that's a that's a fearsome four right there in Toronto. A uh, little true or false, gentlemen. Chris Bassett will be the biggest offseason addition that the Toronto Blue Jays will make. They're not done yet. You know, they have a, they have a, a surplus of catching that they may end up being, you know, depending on what they do in the trade market, if they do want to trade one of their catchers and how they, who they get in return or what kind of deals they make on the trade market. But I really believe it's a good deal because I think they got him undervalued. I think, you know, when you compare to the other deals, just to reiterate the point. So yes, if you want to just talk in terms of value, you know, what he provides for the contract that he signed. And yeah, he, he has a very good chance to be maybe their most significant acquisition. I'm going to say false just because it seems like there's something else lurking there. You know, they make the Teoscar Hernandez trade to Seattle. Kevin Kiermeyer cannot be their biggest offensive move of the, of, of the winter. It cannot be. If that is a complimentary move to improve your defense, fantastic. There has to be some other thing waiting in the wings there with Toronto, a team that is right there in the perfect spot on the wind curve where you say every move we make is improving our odds so much more than other teams. They're right in that probably call it high 80s, low 90s spot. So if you improve your team, you're going to be it, it, it's a world of difference going from, you know, 89 wins to 92 or from Definitely. 91 to 95 compared to teams that are either really good anyway, or teams that are out of it. It's a matter of whether they're going to have to back up the, the Brinks truck for that or possibly trade from their catching surplus. Like David mentioned. Um, I think you can, in, in my opinion, you pair Chris Bassett and Sean Manaya a guy who just signed a two-year deal with the Giants. And you you go back a year ago, like those were really big names that were on the trade market. They both were ultimately dealt and they were a hot commodity. I think these could potentially be two of the most underrated signings of the offseason. So David, what you were talking about with value with Chris Bassett, can we say the same with what the Giants were able to do with Shaw Manaya, locking him up to a two-year deal for 25 million, they have an option as well. No, when you look at uh, the overall body of work in his career, yes, it's a great deal. You look at how he struggled last year, it's a little bit of a red flag and how he kind of face planted a little bit uh, in the second half with, with San Diego. But with all that being said, that's a small sample size. We don't know what was going on behind the scenes, maybe a little injury, maybe he was pitching a little bit of hurt or something at, at, at times. It wasn't full strength, but the overall body of his work, his overall career suggests that, yeah, that's that's a good deal for them, a good chance for the Giants to take, and a much better park to pitch in, too. He he could do very well out there. As Manaya tends to be more of a fly ball pitcher, even though he's not an upper 90s guy. He has a lower release point and gets some ride and some deception on his fastball. He might play better in San Francisco, which is uh, a lot of fly balls die out there, especially in the middle of the ballpark out, out in the Bay Area. Both Bay Area ballparks pitcher-friendly. Maybe a nice little bounce back spot for Manaya. We're not too far removed from him being a solidly above average pitcher who would give you innings, 140, 50, 160 innings with a, you know, sub four ERA. I think it's a little too early to give up on him after one year. Yeah. I, I obviously had a down year with San Diego, but again, go back a year. He was the hottest 
pitching name on the trade market. And we all thought the Padres were building a monster rotation after they acquired him from Oakland. Um, the Padres did make a monster addition via free agency. They signed Xander Bogart to an 11 year contract. And that was one of the last long-term deals that we saw during the week of winter meetings. This is kind of open-ended guys, but why are we seeing the money? Um, owners are committing big money to older players by baseball standards, or at least what they wanted us to believe for the better part of a decade. You know, you don't touch a, th- a guy who's 30 years old, uh, 30 years of age with a long-term deal anymore, maybe five or six years max. I know that we just got through ratifying a new CBA, but overall, why do we think that we're seeing teams spend big and commit to long-term deals on players that are around or above 30? What's changed? I think the medical data is changing a bit in terms of how these guys take care of themselves, more information, biomechanics. Every, every major league team has a tremendous biomechanics department now within the realm of analytics. They understand how the human body moves better now than ever before, how to train for that. Guys like Justin Verlander, you know, players are keeping themselves in much better shape than 20 years ago. You know, we used to go hang out at the hotel bar and now these guys go play video games and eat, drink protein shakes. So, you know, there's definitely a, a, a sea change in how they take care of themselves. And secondly, these are market specific. San Diego is a team on the move. We saw when they made the Juan Soto trade, there was a line around the block to buy season tickets for next year. That fan base was lit up. They beat the Dodgers in the playoffs. They have momentum. Peter Seidler is a tremendous owner who is, is definitely very motivated to win now. So he's, you know, not necessarily a major market either in San Diego. If you think about it, certainly on the media side, it's not, um, but he doesn't care. They're, they, they're going to seize the moment. They're going to go for blue chip prospects, much like Dave Dombrowski in Philadelphia. The mandate is different in Philly and San Francisco and San Diego. And they both have, they're both uh, really reap the benefit of these moves by the playoff runs that they had last year. And to me, that's the residual effect. I mean, you could go for you could go for broke right now, and then you have a chance to really get a residual effect if they can get to the World Series or actually win a World Series. That that will make you money for years to come in season tickets. It sets you up for a nice little windfall that I think is under undervalued in today's game or has been in the uber efficient uh, how we run run teams. Whether it's worth the money or not, we're not we're not going to overspend. You have to win every trade. We have, you know, all this information to inform our decisions. Well, still comes down to the entertainment business. Still comes down to entertaining your fans and gain, gaining on that momentum. And that's that's what we're seeing here in San Diego and Philly in particular. So that's a partial answer to your question, Shaq, in a long-winded way. But it's nice to see teams trying because to me, there's really – you can talk about large markets and small markets and mid-markets, but all these teams are worth over a billion dollars now. Uh, Major League Baseball is in the beginnings of a new collective bargaining agreement. They also have a windfall from the BAM sales, the, the advanced media that that sold the, rent, the the last portion of it that is a windfall to all the teams that split that money equally. So, yeah, I mean, baseball is always going to be divided from other sports because of their local revenue, the regional sports networks, and baseball is very regional. But nonetheless, nationally, they've grown the pie, and the payoff, if you do win, is so big. I think that's what that's what we saw in San Diego. That's what we saw in Philly. Let me ask it this way then. Um, 
it, it feels like no one was forecasting that like Trey Turner was going to command a decade long deal. Like it, it feels like this trend came out of nowhere. No one right. was thinking that we would see multiple deals that would go nine, 10, 11 years for guys like judge Turner Bogarts. Like why didn't any of us see this coming? Why wasn't this talked about ahead of when it actually occurred? Well, you know, James, you and I have talked about this in terms of the owners were trying to spread their cost over the number of years, thinking that the luxury tax will continue to go up on the back end of the Aaron Judge contract. What will the luxury tax be 10 years from now? It may be completely different. So I think that's part of the reasoning behind it. There were rumors that San Diego was going to offer Judge a 14-year deal for $400 million to spread those costs across a number of years, and that there were also rumors that Major League Baseball might have problems with that kind of a deal because it's skirting the luxury tax issue. So that's really what it comes down to is these, these long-term contracts, including Turner's, including Bryce Harper's, including Manny Machado's are spread out for a reason. And that's so they can uh, amortize the cost over more years and, and, and help keep the maneuverability under the luxury tax. The game is on firm financial footing, 11 billion in revenues. And the thing we have to, keep in mind with these long-term deals. It's not about, oh, how's this going to look in Trey Turner's 10th and 11th seasons? It's what is the total value that he's providing over the course of the contract? And then you can make that judgment. So the Aaron Judge deal, for example, it's a nine-year deal. He's going to be 39 at the end of the contract. It, it's easy to think that he's not going to be a playing at an MVP level by then. However, if he has, say, five years of MVP candidate type production and it's all crammed in the first five or six years of that deal, he's providing surplus value that you use for the end of the deal and you say, okay, we paid 360. Are we getting 360 million worth of value over the entire nine-year period? Good point. Um, all right, guys, let's get to our chat with, with Jerry Blevins here who is becoming a, a baseball media star on the rise. He is a, he's a 13 year big league reliever career ERA plus one fourteen, Very, very good. Uh, you can listen to Jerry on Shea station with Jolly Olive here on John boy media. And he touches on a ton of topics as the Mets are consistently in the news over the last 10 days to two weeks when it comes to off season moves. So here it is our chat with our friend from Shea station. It's Jerry Blevins. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us here this week. A lot of places where we can begin, but the broad question, I guess, for someone who who watches this Mets team every day, despite losing Jacob deGrom, have the Mets exceeded your expectations when it comes to addressing their pitching this offseason? Man, that's a that's a, a really good question. Thank you. Um <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Shackle coming through right off the bat. Uh, it'll be strange. It's a big loss not having DeGrom. You know, he had a chance to be – well, he still is one of the greatest Mets to ever don a uniform. Um, seeing him in another uniform will be weird. Um, it was one of my favorite things. The highlight of my career was playing alongside of him, so that'll be strange. But in letting him go, they quickly, you know, jumped into action, and I think they've done an, an amazing job. Uh, filling in they went after Verlander and got him along with Scherzer they went after a underappreciated solid big leaguer in Jose Quintana from the left side that guy had an amazing year last year 
Um, he had a great start to his career, and I think he's a little bit underappreciated. And so they, they got him on a cheaper uh, two-year deal. And then they just made an ex- really, really exciting high-end upside st- type of gamble with uh, Kodai Singa addressing uh, another spot in the rotation. Singa has a high 90s fastball. He has this thing that he calls a ghost fork ball, which I can't wait to hear David talk about a ghost fork. <laughs> fork balls are almost like gone from the entire era of baseball. So that should be fun. Um, but there's some question marks around Singa. What can he throw enough strikes because he had a little bit of control issues in Japan? Will that fork ball translate with the MLB ball being a little bit bigger? Um, can he handle a five day rotation? Um, a lot of question marks, but they filled that rotation with some very good names, a, a Cy Young winner at 40 years old. They've got some some age issues, but I think they have enough depth with Tyler McGill and David Peterson, um, Joey Lucchese coming back from Tommy John. They have a Jose Budo. They could probably use maybe one or two more higher end triple A type guys in the rotation, but it's a very exciting front end, back end of rotation with some some major upside in Senga. Jerry, I know you get you get your finger on the pulse there a little bit working at SNY and, and being in that clubhouse here and there. Um, do you get the sense that that they're done or is it or there's going to be some trades maybe to sort of shake up the payroll a little bit? Or is he going to run out there with a 300 and whatever plus uh, <laughs> plus change payroll? What, what, what's your take on that? Uh, this is complete speculation on my end. I don't I don't have. I don't reach out to my, my friends and ask them too much as I'm sure you understand being a former player as well. But I do think that they are going to try and move one of the bigger kind of bench pieces that they have and supplement some, some payroll issues. But I think Steve Cohen is completely comfortable if this is his opening day roster uh, to go with it. There's no forceful, they don't have to dump payroll um, which is such a blessed spot to be in where you feel secure um, it's a really fun time to be covering the Mets, be a fan of the Mets, um, to be a player in that organization, I'm sure, because you feel like everything is pointed in the right direction. They're doing everything they can to win at the big league level and supplementing that they're trying to build the minor league. So it, it's a fun time to be in and around this organization. How, how's your arm feeling? I got two years, 17 million on the table for you. <laughs> I I think I might come out of uh, retirement for that and completely underperform. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think I would blow out immediately, but uh, yeah, man, it's, it's a fun spot to be in the, the coverage of the Mets has been really exciting. And this, the front end of this, I mean, it started even before free agency hit with Edwin Diaz signing in that five day window. It showed you that they value the player because they went to him they didn't lowball him before he could hear any offers. They were like, look, we know you could get this on the open market. We want you with us. Do you want to be with us? And they said, yeah. And it was a great thing. That brings in guys like Justin Verlander, knowing that they're going to be treated right because they want to win. It just makes it makes Queens a destination for teams and for players that want to win. And it's, it's fun. It's got to be 180 degrees from the old regime. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'll forever be grateful to the Wilpons. Um, they did a lot for me personally. They were great to me. Um, they put together some championship style uh, caliber ball clubs, uh, but they did have some financial restraints that that the deep pockets of Steve Cohen don't or doesn't have. And uh, again, uh, the Wilpons were great to me. So I have not, not a bad word to say, but Steve Cohen is definitely 
put his stamp early on in his tenure as an owner of the New York Mets. Jeremy, I know it's it's more complicated than the numbers I'm I'm about to throw at you, but with all things being equal, I think uh, David James, you guys, in terms of Degrom or Verlander, and just on the surface, you you opted for five years of Degrom versus two years of Verlander, correct? Is that what it was? Are you asking me? No, I was asking David and oh. James. Is that how you guys were going? Uh, oh, you mean preference wise on our yeah. parts? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Degrom is Degrom. You know, right. Jerry Jerry said that very well. I mean, it was an event when he pitched at City Field. Yeah. Uh, he was so entrenched in the fan base, almost cult like. Uh, you know, in terms of, of his popularity. So time will tell, but what a great pivot though. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're not going to commit to J to, to Grom, you weren't sure that, you know, maybe he did want to go somewhere else. A lot of rumors behind the scenes that he really loved New York or not. You know, only he can answer that question, but the Rangers came hard. They came fast. That was an incredible offer. Pretty hard to turn down. If you're Jacob DeGrom, maybe he likes it down there better starting over. But with that being said, the pivot to Verlander immediately, just sent a message right to the fan base, you know, right in the face of losing somebody that's on the Mount Rushmore of their all-time great pitchers. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there's Seaver, there's Doc, Jacob DeGrom's on that list. Maybe you throw in Jerry Kuzman, somebody like that, but it, that, that's the Mount Rushmore of pitchers in, in Mets history. So Jacob DeGrom was firmly, firmly in there. So that was a big blow and a, and a great pivot right away to get to Verlander. And I think if you want to win right now, that Verlander might give you that advantage in the first in his first or two year deal that he has because coming off a Cy Young Award winning season, he's battle tested. He's got a warranty on his elbow. He's got a new elbow now after going through Tommy John. So yeah, maybe he's ready right now to give you more of a full season. Whereas with Jacob Degrom, you weren't sure you know if he could give you a full season or not based on his recent tra- track record. It was the really the only pivot to make when you're dealing with Degrom an all-time great pitcher who's pitch for pitch, inning for inning, probably the best in the game. If you don't get him, there's not much, there's not, there's not really anywhere else to go to get similar kind of value. So Verlander is the great move there. And it's less of a, both guys have their injury risks and their age concerns, but on a two-year deal in a win now situation, Verlander is about as good as you can get in that spot. Where are you at Jerry? Two years of Verlander or five years of DeGrom? Um, I, I don't have to choose. Thank goodness. Uh, I feel like, uh, David nailed it. I think DeGrom and the Mets, I felt like it was at a point to where it was mutual respect and they both saw possible greener pastures. It would have been ideal. I love the fact of a player of his caliber, being able to stay with an organization, uh, for one organization for his entire career. I was heartbroken to see Freddie Freeman leave Atlanta, even though I cover the Mets and he's, him and Ichiro are my two least favorite people to see in the box when I had to face them. Uh, it hurt, it hurt my feelings to see a guy like that walk because I know what it means to him and the fan base, but this felt like a time for change in, in the organization. And it felt like, you know, DeGrom may have really enjoyed his time in New York. I think he did from, from our conversations. Um, but I felt like maybe it was time for both of them to, to go see what else is out there. He wants to to try a different tact, and he's earned the right to to choose his destination. He's like you said, like James said, uh, pitch for pitch. There's no doubt in my mind that when he's on, he's the best pitcher, head and shoulders above everybody in the league. Um, and the Rangers made him an offer, a big gamble on five years of a guy that's that's hasn't pitched a lot recently, but one that I think is worth taking. 
And the Mets were in a different spot. Uh, they're trying to, to shore up a little bit more uh, front end early without giving up uh, compensation for, for draft picks. So I think Verlander fit that mold uh, a little bit better than DeGrom once DeGrom decided to leave. I think it freed up some of the things that they wanted to do as an organization. And you see them jump on it. Again, if this feels like you're in, you're a, it's a safe time to be a New York Mets fan because even though they may not win a World Series, because as you guys know, winning a World Series is, is a lot of luck, chance. It's hard, but at least you know that they're getting going to be put in a position every year to be a winning style ball club. Uh, and you can't, you haven't been able to say that as a Mets fan in a while. So I think when, when DeGrom signed the, the quick pivot told you that they had a plan with and without Jacob DeGrom. Go back to Senga for a minute. Cause you kind of outlined all the possibilities that could come with his arrival to the Mets. One of them being a potential six man rotation. And David, I'm curious, former starting pitcher. What's the first thing that pops into your head when you hear a team or people from the outside, basically suggesting that, Hey, a six man rotation could be on the table. Like, was there a point in your career where that was being rumored within the clubhouse? And what were your, first impressions when you heard about something like that, because you'd eventually be, be affected. Well, the, the thing I noticed is later in my career, the extra rest really helped. There's no doubt about it. Recovery time is the key, you know, under the umbrella of analytics, we have the medical part of it, the medical data that's now in play. And, you know, a lot of the research shows us that the recovery time is key in between starts, especially guys that are, they're, you know, a little bit older, has some age on them. And that's, that's the case with the Mets, obviously, you know, obviously you want to, you want to protect Scherzer and Verlander or whenever you can skip a start if possible, or give them extra days, wherever you can. Certainly Singh is going to, going to have some issues coming over here. As Jerry said, perfectly. I mean, it's the baseball's a little different, really every, every Japanese pitcher that's coming, come over has kind of complained about the baseball because they're used to a, not only a little bit smaller of a baseball, but the tacky feel of, of the Japanese baseball is much different. And I think some major league pitchers would love to use that Japanese baseball more. They've toyed with it in major league baseball. A lot of things going on with the baseball in major league baseball <laughs> nowadays, as we know, and wild. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, different versions of the base, how many different versions of the baseball were actually used. Uh, Meredith Wills is coming out, come out with her new research. So that's a, that's a, that's a story for another pro podcast one day <laughs> where we get into the baseball itself, but no doubt that Singh is going to have some adjustments. He's going to need a little extra time. There's, there's not only the different style of hitters that he's going to face, but also just the getting feel for the, for the lineups, for the mounds, for the baseball itself, give him a little extra time because if you're gripping that fork ball and that splitters, you know, from what I've seen on video, he's got a couple of different variations. He's got that ghost fork ball that Jerry talked about, but he's also got a splitter too. Big difference between a fork ball and a split finger fastball. A split finger fastball is not as wide of a split. It's thrown harder. He's shown some low 90s kind of splitters too, along with that ghost fork ball that he splits really wide. So that's going to take some time for him too to adjust and maybe a little extra rest in between starts might protect him a little bit. That's something to look look at. Billy Epler's great with this stuff. Billy Epler was all over Shohei Otani. He was a, he's got a scouting background. He understands uh, the Asia market. He understands Japanese baseball very well. So Billy Epler is very, very equipped to, to handle these issues. So I would expect, yeah, for them to look for every opportunity to sort of do a pseudo six-man rotation or look for extra days rest whenever they can get it. The extra rest here in the States has become more prevalent as well. So if you look at Scherzer last year in Queens, he had 14 of his 23 regular season starts on five days rest or more. 
Justin Verlander in Houston. He had 23 of his 28 starts during the regular season were on extra rest. So that's something that guys have already started to get used to a little more. So that's something that I think Buck is going to be able to handle pretty well. Yeah, I I, I agree, Shackle. I think it's hard to justify 43 million per year for those guys. If you're not going to try to get 30 starts, 30 plus starts out of them. So I think it's going to be few and far between. I don't think they'll ever do a true six day or six man rotation, but with, with Singus question marks and pitching once a week with the age of Verlander and Scherzer and with the depth that they have, like, Peterson already showed he's very capable of going up and down and handling that because there's a mental aspect to being the back and forth guy that, that he handled really well. And he didn't get bitter. He, he knows that he belongs in a rotation. Um, but he understands that you, you can't do anything. And if you complain and, and get bitter, they'll choose somebody else. And so he handled that well. Um, and they'll supplement those guys. They'll, they'll bring guys in, give everybody a bump uh, here and there, and hopefully the depth stays there. There'll be a way of, as David well knows, there'll be a way of all these things working themselves out during the season. Um, but I, I think they're going to try to maximize uh, the amount of starts they get from Scherzer and Verlander and also <clears throat> being a little bit cautious with their, their age and workload. Guys, for, for me, I think the splitter is a, an awesome pitch. I love watching pitchers be able to throw it. I, I big reason why I was such a fan of Masahiro Tanaka when he was with the Yankees. It, and with Senga's forkball, when he gets past the adjustments of everything that's ahead of him now with Major League Baseball, new ball, everything like that. I know, David, you touched the surface on it, but just it, it kind of explained the difference between a pitch like Senga's forkball versus what we saw from a, a Tanaka splitter when he was here. Yeah. You know, I think Tanaka was probably in between a forkball and a splitter. And I'm, I get a little technical with it because I threw a splitter and I was taught by, by Roger Craig, who was a real advocate of what he called the split finger fastball. It's in the genre of fastballs, meaning don't split it so wide, throw a two seam fastball, just get off the seams get your finger to get the pads of your fingers on the leather part outside the seams and just think fastball and throw. And it was more like a super sinker at times you could variate it, maybe move your thumb a little bit, tweak the grip a little wider at times, but the wider you split, the more spin you're going to take off the ball, the more velocity you're going to take off the ball and the more movement you're going to have. So that's that, that ghost fork ball that, that Jerry was talking about that has tremendous movement that we've seen on video. Now, I don't, not too many of us have seen a pitch live. Obviously we just, just going by video, but I, I did see a couple of variations. He threw some low 90 split finger, what I would call splitter fastballs uh, in that, in that uh, sequence too, that ghost fork ball is going to be probably in the mid eighties or lower eighties with big movement on it and, and much less rotation. And the splitter is going to look more like a two seamer. It's going to come in and just kind of dart and dive at the last minute. So it looks like he can do a lot of different things with the baseball that he's got a real good feel for that grip that he can have different variations of that grip. But anytime you hear, uh, you know, something like a ghost fork ball, you know, that's a pretty special pitch. It, they, they don't <laughs> I never got one of those names. I never yeah. got a cool nickname from any of my pitches. Yeah. You know, you, you, to get a cool nickname like that, Jerry knows you, you got to have something going on there. And he obviously does. And he's one of the best pitchers in the world is going to try to find out at a different level with tough adjustments, just how good he is. And, but he deserves this opportunity. We've seen him too on the on the top end, at reaching triple digits with his fastball at times too. Uh, so you know he's he's a true power guy. You know across the board, we've seen this, and Jerry knows this too as well. 
velocity has gone up. It continues to go up. And that's just not in the in, in Major League Baseball or the minor leagues. That's around the world. People are training for velocity. They're using weighted balls. Everybody has their own variation of, of how to train for velocity. And that's no different in Japan. The, the velocity has increased in Japan as well. We see several Japanese pitchers that now hit triple digits, whereas 10 years ago, that was just not the case. Jerry, you mentioned how the tone was kind of set with this Mets offseason by quickly locking up Edwin Diaz. And then the Mets' most recent moves uh, are, well, aside from Senga, are, are moves that complement Diaz in the bullpen. David Robertson, Brooks Raley. What will be different with those two in the bullpen? Well, I think they still have a little bit of room to add in that bullpen. That was uh, a little bit shaky. They're going to lose Seth Lugo, who has been a staple of this organization for a few years. It looks like he's got a market out there as a starter, which has always been uh, what he wanted to be. Um, so uh, they, they just they haven't had a true lefty since Loop. So Rayleigh coming over, he has a, an, a tremendous slider, as you Yankees fans know, because you, you've got to see it up close. He knows how to get lefties and righties out. Um, but behind Diaz, I still think they could use one more significant kind of good piece, but because you can never have enough depth in the bullpen, you can supplement that with some, some young guys. They got Steven Nagosik in the minor leagues who showed up last year and kind of put his, his stamp that he wants to be in the big leagues and looked really good, but they don't have great depth. It'll be interesting to see, uh, what they do with Tyler McGill, because his workload spiked. He looked like baby DeGrom for a little bit, throwing 99 on opening day. And then as the season progressed, he had a couple of injuries. They moved him to the bullpen, and his velo didn't spike like they thought it would. So they have some moves to make. But that, that bullpen is – Edwin Diaz is – you know, him and Classe are the two best relievers in, in the world by far. And Edwin Diaz showed, uh, to me, it's a big bonus for him that he struggled when he first came over. He stood in front of his locker. He answered the questions. He took it uh, like a true professional. And he got better because of his struggles. So even if he has a little bit of a lull, it's going to be hard to match last year. But if anybody can do it, I think it's him. And if there's adjustments that need to be made, he's already shown a willingness to make adjustments and be um, kind of upfront and and proactive to kind of get on top of things moving forward. You know, Jerry, I always, I hate, I want to pivot real quick there just to your personal story. I always asked, you know, uh, former pitchers that were on kind of a little bit of their history and, you know, going back, uh, you know, uh, Johnson city, Tennessee, I got your baseball reference page up right here in university of Dayton. Then you get drafted and you move around. You had quite a long career, a 13 year career back to the beginning, Johnson city, Tennessee, I mean, that, that's kind of a famous minor league uh, town, right? I mean, St. Louis Cardinals were there for years. I mean, Johnson City, Tennessee is like the rookie ball sport. It used to be back in the 80s. And, uh, you know, growing up, who were your influences? Was that an influence? And then going to, to, to Dayton University when you finally get drafted by the Cubs, what, what did that feel like? So uh, I'll start with Tennessee. I was born in Johnson City. Uh, my parents divorced when I was four. So I grew up and I live currently in Ohio. So East Tennessee is still in my roots, and, and um, I got to play uh, in Sevierville with the Tennessee Smokies, uh, be around that area, which was lovely for me. But uh, I'm, I'm an Ohio boy. I'm a Buckeye. Uh, it's basically all I know. Um, my influences were my older brother, who's four years older than me, is 
still to this day, much better athlete than I ever was. And I ever will be. I just happen to do one thing really well. And that's throw a baseball with my left hand a little bit better than he can do a little, uh, his, his specialties. But, um, I grew up an ace fan. Uh, I grew up, you know, loving watching Randy Johnson pitch. Um, I grew up playing three sports, baseball, basketball, and football, uh, staying active, doing all sorts of different things. Um, and then uh, when I went to Dayton, you know, uh, I went on an academic scholarship with my, my best friend. We saw the, the dorm room poster saying tryouts for the baseball team are this Saturday. I said, all right, this is what we were talking about when we came to Dayton. We both tried out for the team. Uh, I ended up making it and quickly learning that that pitching is more than just throwing as hard as you can. Um, I always had a good curveball, so I would do that. And then I got to college and they stopped swinging. So what, what used to be in high school where I'd have, you know, 15 plus strikeouts and seven plus walks every day turned into, you know, I walk five guys in a row and the coach pulls me out. So I had to learn to adjust to the game quickly and got humbled. Um, and then when I got drafted my junior year, I finally put it all together. It was a shock to me that I got drafted uh, in the 17th round because everything I was. So my scout, Brian Williams, who who works with the Rangers, I was his first guy he scouted uh, as a scout. So I didn't know how much clout he had. He didn't know how much clout he had. I got to go to Wrigley for a pre-draft workout and pitch. I took some Ivy off the wall because I thought maybe I'll probably never get back here. Odds are. Um, and so I got drafted high and, and I signed because they offered me my, my, I lost my academic scholarship being a student athlete, which was tough, but Dayton was expensive still is. And I was non-scholarship. So uh, as a humble beginning kid, I, I had to take the, the free college and, and a signing bonus of $35,000. And uh, one of the best days of my life, it was when I had to watch it on the computer and kept refreshing and see it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I got drafted already. Um, wild. So uh, all I needed was uh, a hat and some directions. And, and I went out to Boise, Idaho and started my career, but uh, fun. I'll be forever grateful to baseball, understanding that I did put the work in. Um, I did really, sacrifice a lot to be there but i understand there's a lot of things along the way that that worked in my favor from timing organization whatever the case may be i feel lucky and blessed to have played the game for as long as i did yeah the, the oakland years you know any billy bean stories or uh bob melvin or you know you had <laughs> such you had such a good run there extended it was a run and in oakland i mean you i mean not too many people last that long in one spot and you know you had a nice run there Thank you. I think that's what got me traded because the last year I was there, I was the longest tenured player. And I think it embarrassed them that a middle relief guy was their longest tenured player. So I think they got rid of me. Uh, I, I love the A's. I still to this day, I'll be forever grateful. Um, they traded for me and it got me to the big leagues uh, because <clears throat> I think the Cubs had other plans. They had tried to drop me down submarine and I struggled there and I went back over the top and the A's scouted me and I got uh, traded and uh, we were really bad my first few years there from 07, 8, 9, 10, 11. We got Bob Melvin, who is like a general, a leader of men as, as, as good as it gets. Um, I still love Bob Melvin to this day. I tried to get him to come to New York Mets. I think they enjoy Buck Showalter and he's enjoying San Diego. So I understand. Um, but I, I love that man. Uh, he did a lot for me in my career. He was open and honest. And one thing about Billy Bean is he tells you the truth. 
and he treats you like like a professional, like a man. And that's what I needed. I got a lot of early in my career, a lot of, you know, option down. What happened? What do you need to work on? And they would just blow smoke. And and one day I went into Billy's office because my last year with a with a option, I was getting I was pitching my ass off. I had like a sub three. I'm pitching really well. Three innings, one hitter at a time didn't matter. I was coming in and doing it. And I asked Bob Melvin. I was like, Bob, what is going on? Why am I not staying in the big leagues? And Bob goes, you're gonna have to talk to Billy. Uh, so I did. And I sat down. Billy told me, he's like, truthfully, he goes, you're the guy. He goes, we have nobody else in the bullpen with options that we can move without losing. And he goes, and we're not very good. We're building for the future. You're the guy. He goes, and I mentioned it with David Peterson because I, I've been there. Uh, he told me, you can either handle it, be a good teammate in AAA and show up like you have been and not complain and, and, and push and get better. And we'll call you up every time, or you can get bitter and we'll leave you in the minor leagues. He goes, we have your control. It's going to keep happening. Either you handle it or you don't, and it's up to you. And I'll, I'll be grateful for him uh, for being truthful and honest to me, for giving me a chance. And that, that again, if they give you a, this is your job and you can't do that, there's no reason for you to complain about anything. And so as long as he says, this is what we want you to do. Like when I came over to the Mets, they wanted me to strictly get lefties out or concentrate on that. Perfect. I am a, I am an employee. I will do what you need me to do. And if I can't, I have no complaints, but if you don't tell me what I, what it is that you really want me to do, how am I supposed to provide it? And that gets frustrating. And the Oakland A's never did that to me. And, and, and that's one of the million things that I'll be for grateful for them. Uh, and we put out some really good ball clubs in that 12 and 13 year before I got traded Two, both of them. We got knocked out by Justin Verlander in the game five. Uh, and it was him and Scherzer together. So I had nightmares when they signed those two together um, so I'm glad I get to root for them as a combined unit versus, you know, them sending me home uh, early before I was ready to go. Gary, seven shutout innings in your postseason career across six games. How about this? So there have been 1,309 pitchers to pitch in the MLB postseason in history. Jerry, Opposing hitters, one for 22, which is an 045 batting average, the lowest opponent batting average out of any pitcher who's faced at least 20 batters in the postseason. Pretty cool, James. Uh, thank you. There, you there's two that? things. One, I, I, I remember the hit. It was Prince Fielder, and he hit an absolute sky ball that dropped right behind second base. So I... I still feel like I won that battle. I got weak contact. Uh, they were just spread out in the, the, the giant outfield that is the Coliseum. But I, that's, that's what uh, I take pride in. That's, I think, what helped me succeed in New York is when the pressure is on, I was able to slow it down because the mental side of pitching and, and sports and life in general, I've really taken a shine to. It started in college with my pitching coach, uh, Todd Linklater, showing me. And I, I said, I struggled throwing strikes. Uh, I got into a, a strange thought process and, and habits. And I turned uh, my negative thinking into positive thinking. And I remember thinking about what I will do, but those, those moments in the postseason, those are the ones you dream about when you're a kid. And so I'd always remember that, that when I'm facing Ken Griffey Jr. when I'm 10 years old 
in my head, it's game seven of the World Series. The bases are loaded, and I've got to attack the greatest hitter of all time with the prettiest swing ever. I, I've been there a million times doing it. And so when I'm actually in there, pressure is a privilege. And so I was able to slow it down, take advantage of some things. And when the lights were on and it was truly meaning and I was playing chess out there when guys were nervous, those are the moments that I'll forever cherish when you're playing meaningful baseball in September and October runs, playing in the playoffs. Those are what it's all about. And if you if you can shut all that out and succeed there, I think that's the true definition of, of who you are as an athlete and as a person, in my opinion. I love that. that that's a stat, Jerry, that is worthy of putting in like your Twitter bio. So, <laughs> yeah. what, oh, one more before we let you go here. I know you have the picture of Tyson in the background. I know you and I have talked boxing in the past. I don't know if you saw Edwin Diaz accompanied a really impressive upcoming title contender over the weekend at Madison Square Garden. He ring-walked with Xander Zayas at MSG. So if you could accompany any box, and you know what? I feel like you're going to gravitate toward Tyson since he's in the picture in the background. Other than Mike Tyson, if Jerry Blevins could accompany any boxer on their ring walk, who would it be? So I wouldn't pick Tyson, but okay. that is great. I, Tyson, this is a, an autograph. I'm going to see if I can move the camera a little bit. It's an autographed Mike Tyson's punch out, which is uh, one of my favorite games of all time. So it's a combination of sports and video games, which I love. But uh, I, I think I would choose, uh, man, probably, probably Tommy Hearns, I think. He was an era of, of him and Hagler and um, who was the third? Uh, there were just, it was in an era of boxing when it wasn't just about the promotion. It was about who is better. There's been so many fights. I've been so disappointed in the sport of boxing, which why I think MMA filled a huge void for a long time where the boxers weren't facing each other in the, their prime and really challenging and doing what, boxers are they're gladiators and i'll forever be appreciative of guys that really put it on the line that are willing to lose to battle the best at their best um and i think tommy hearns was was a guy that i'll forever respect he's he's a long lean guy kind of like me uh and he just went out there and, and battled so i think i think i would I would be hype enough to, to walk that, that path. And I always think about that, that, that Friday night lights feeling of when you're jogging out that walk from an MMA, from the locker room to the cage, that walk to the boxing ring, what a mind like journey to be able to lock in. Those are the moments in the playoffs. I just got chills thinking about it, that you're able to calm yourself down, get over those nerves. And those boxing guys do it every day with somebody trying to kill them. It's amazing to me. Great era. The, uh, the four Kings. It's right. Agler, Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Roberto Duran. That's right. Where's where's Butterbean fit into all that? <laughs> <laughs> Butterbean was like my 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 uh, first YouTube venture. I used to watch his like highlights. Like this yeah. guy is he's the the Bartolo Colon of boxing. Yes, <laughs> yeah, he's fun to watch. It sure is. Jerry, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate you stopping by, talking Mets, talking pitching, what it takes to compete, and uh, living in the Four Kings era. I love that man. Uh, great talking to you again. Thanks for the time, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys.
Guys, I just realized like Jerry went to Dayton. I went to Fordham, both A-10 schools. I just missed possibly calling college baseball games with Jerry pitching in them. He beat me by a year. He got drafted in 04. I think the first uh, baseball tape I ever cut was in 2005. So I just missed him by by a year. Dayton Flyer uh, pitching uh, in the Bronx. Jerry was drafted in, in, in 2004, but uh, he's awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. And you know, an underrated career, really mm-hmm. solid. You look at his numbers overall, really a solid career. Uh, pitched in postseason as James came up with this great nugget. Mm-hmm. I think he even surprised him a little bit about his, his postseason resume, minimum 20 innings. So, yeah, I mean, he, it's a lot to be proud of there. I mean, he's a, when you last that long in the big leagues, if you're an over 10-year vet, that is a major accomplishment. The average major league career, just making it to the big leagues, is saying something in my mind. And I never forgot that just making it to professional baseball. If you made it to double a, you're better than most. You make it to the big leagues. You, you really, that's a significant accomplishment. You play 10 years in the big leagues. That's a real separator, no matter what you've done or how long you've lasted. He did a lot of things right across his career and had a nice long career. All right. We're going to pivot here as we close out the show and we're trying something new out and we're going to like designate, a slice of each show on the back end to some Yankees talk. And you know what? If you have a suggestion of what we can name this segment, put it in the comments in the YouTube stream for sure. But this is a, this is a section here where we want to, you know, give a little love to our, our Yankee fan base. If you're not a fan of the Yankees, um, Hey, you can, you can skip forward, but I think you should stay with us because you never know where the conversation may lead to. We always kind of, dive into uh, talk maybe about other teams and and with what we are talking about with the Yankees here uh, this week, it deals with free agents. So they could possibly go to to other teams here. But as we zero in on the Yankees guys, a lot of buzz about this team being linked to guys like Carlos Correa and even Fernando Tatis Jr. Over the last several days, I think there's just a lot of smoke. That's me personally, but you have retained judge here. You're trying to make your next move. Would you rather the Yankees spend big on Carlos Rodon or make a big splash addition at shortstop, someone like Correa, and then trade some of their top prospect capital in the middle infield for that starting pitching that they need? Which way are you going? Carlos I Correa. Got, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Carlos Correa. You don't come to see a future Hall of Fame shortstop in his prime at 27, 28 years old, just available in free agency every day. There was a chance to do that last year. They didn't do it. Miraculously, he's back on the market. This guy is maybe the best two-way player in the game. He's the best defender at shortstop, and he's a prolific bat. 129 career OPS plus. Last year was 140. He didn't skip a beat leaving Houston, this guy, his worst seasons are like three wins above replacement. His best seasons is seven to have that kind of floor. This guy's on a hall of fame track. He's a safer bet than a pitcher. And I think that you can really just lock in this guy and say, we're going to have this superstar shortstop just locked in on our infield for the next several years. And even with the ability to maybe move him to third base on down the road too, a la Cal Ripken Jr. And he he had already said that he would do that for Francisco Lindor. 
obviously, obviously uh, if, if needed be, if the Mets were, were in the, in the bidding for him. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to turn down a great player like that without a doubt. I mean, the best laid plans, right? Last year they, they turned him down. Uh, they didn't really get into the bidding on him at all. Betting on the kids. We've heard Hal Steinbrenner say, I'm anxious to see the kids, Peraza and Volpe, when that's going to happen. Uh, spring training is going to be a big deal watching those guys. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like that's just not on their radar, even with all the smoke and all the rumors, right? I mean, well, maybe he is. Maybe they they pivoted. It's quite possible that they have. But I I, I don't know. I, I just kind of see them looking at Rodon as a lefty and maybe thinking that maybe that's the better fit, play the kids. They still have to figure out the left side of their infield. And, you know, even if they roll Donaldson out there for another year, uh, they still have to figure out shortstop. And is Peraza going to get that spot or not? Is Volpe ready or not? What do they do with Glaber? If you sign Correa, does that mean you're going to trade Glaber? You're going to rearrange everything. Is there a taker for Donaldson at third? Kind of doubt it at this point because of his contract. So yeah, the whole reconfiguration of the infield from second base to short to third is on the table. And if you put Correa, Correa in the middle of all that, well, that solves that problem. But then, okay, now you're going to reconfigure everything else. Is Volpe going to be your second baseman? Can he play third base in the future? You know, you have to have an eye on the future here in terms of uh, who's going to play third base next year, if it's Donaldson this year, or at least for half of the year. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of question marks in there on the infield that, that to me, uh, uh, need to be answered. With the, And with that being said, they're short on outfielders as well. They need a left fielder. And then in the minor leagues, you know, you have Jason Dominguez, who's their top outfield prospect, is probably going to start in double A, but they're, they don't have a lot of depth in terms of outfield prospects as well. So you kind of get the feeling the Yankees need to sign an outfielder, somebody that can be there for a while. The great thing about having, you know, high-end prospects that are shortstops is that they can, they can move easily down the defensive spectrum to second base, to third base, to the outfield, if need be. And whether it's Correa or Rodon, you know, I just jumped in all Carlos Correa. Well, if you sign Carlos Rodon, that's that's a pretty great move as well. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. I think most would agree that it was great that they brought back Aaron Judge, something that they had to do. But really, it's right now it's pretty much the same team as last year. I think they need one more big splash. It, uh, I think both would be terrific. But that that was the question posed. So and and James, I agree with you. I don't. I personally, I don't have to think. It's Carlos Correa. Every single time there, there are kind of three things that we track in this game, right? The stars, the storylines, the strategies within the game It's the, it's the triple S threat right there. Correa is a star. The storyline is limitless with him coming to a team like the Yankees, how he fits into this team in terms of strategy, kind of also limitless. I think that's an opportunity that you jump at. And again, the, the names that you just mentioned, the Volpe's Peraza's well, that's where you could kind of fortify your rotation, in my opinion. Uh, prospects are certainly cool to have. Uh, championships are cooler. At the end of the uh, and at the end of the day, that is the the name of the game right there. Use some of them to address the spot in the rotation that you're focusing on with a guy like Carlos Rodon. Again, they know more than we do. It's a lot more complicated than that. But face value, you ask either or. I'm going Carlos Correa for all the reasons I just listened, uh, mentioned. Star storyline how he fits in strategy easy decision for me uh guys that's going to do it here this week um it's going to be 
I mean, at any moment, we can have a, a Rodon decision. So, like, we got kind of have to stand by our, our microphones here. So, if anything happens, uh, what well, we probably could be back with a bonus ep if the Yankees make another big move, right? We're ready. We're always ready to pull the trigger here. <laughs> All right. Big thank you to Jerry Blevins for spending some time with us. Uh, of course, our awesome producer, Dan Work, pulling the strings, doing all the hard stuff. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe. Best way that you can support the show here. Uh, until our next episode, whether it is a bonus version or next week, for David Cohn, for James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, this has been another edition of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. <laughs>